The next series of cases was presented to Drs. Grothy in Berlin, and to begin, Dr. Michael Schwartz presents a patient with synchronous colon cancer and metastatic disease. This is a 63-year-old black gentleman from Curaçao who presented with a microcytic anemia and constipation. He underwent colonoscopy and was found to have impending obstruction of the sigmoid colon. CT scans demonstrated liver metastasis, omental and pelvic disease. He came to Miami to seek definitive care. And in August 2006, he underwent a diverting colostomy. At the time of surgery, extensive pelvic disease, as described by the surgeon, a frozen pelvis was identified. Multiple liver lesions, which were biopsy, proven to be metastatic carcinoma. Can you talk a little bit about the man himself and his attitude and, you know, sort of the conversations you were having and what his lifestyle was like? Right. Well, this 63, otherwise completely healthy, very active, actually a competitive tennis player. And that was, he was almost semi-retired. He was pretty successful. And his favorite thing to do was play tennis and married, has family in the United States, but most of his family in Curacao. And no one likes to have a colostomy. Liking playing tennis, I guess, made that even more difficult. Yeah, that was really a major impact on his quality of life. Any comorbidities, other health problems? None whatsoever. Never had a health problem before? None. What was his reaction to this sudden, instant, devastating situation? Well, you know, he was fairly stoic about the whole thing. And I think really it was his family that the emotion came from his family. And it's an incurable disease, and what are we going to do? He needs to get the best treatment possible. He needs to go wherever he needs to go to get it. Did they ask you any questions about expected survival or whether he could be cured? Yeah, they did. He didn't. He didn't. But they did. Was he present when they asked? Good point. No. What I find is this is a very intelligent gentleman, and if he's not asking the question, it's because he doesn't want to hear the answer. Do you think you had sort of tacit permission or understood permission from him to talk to his family and give that kind of information out? Oh, yeah, I had direct permission. Oh, you actually asked him? Yeah. Your family's asked to get this information. It was interesting, having seen patients in Miami, of course, we all see patients from different cultures, the cultural differences in how families handle the information transfer. Mm -hmm. Axel, I see you shaking your head. I agree 100%. First of all, it's always a kind of a problem to see patients don't ask and the families ask. So this is a situation where I really ask the patient directly. So is it fine for me even without you talking to a patient? You know, sometimes patients are in the exam room, change, you know, you step outside, family surrounds you and tries to get information. Also implying that the patient doesn't need to know. And I think that's a very tricky thing because in the end, it's the patient who needs to decide with you in a partnership, you know, how to be treated. Do you feel that he sort of was understanding what was going on and just didn't want to talk about it? Or maybe he had no idea? Well, he wasn't in denial or anything. He just wanted to tell me what the best treatment is. And I wanted to do He knew the seriousness of the situation. Yeah. So, Jordan, how would you be thinking through his therapy at this point? I usually think about what the standard first-line drugs are and what might be better options versus worse options. 
you know, the colostomy is not something I'm going to be able to fix on him. And, and that's going to seriously impact on his ability to do the thing he loves the most, which is play tennis. But at the same time, the chemotherapy options can also possibly interfere further. If you think about Fulfiri, there's a possibility that you're hoping that there's a bathroom near the tennis court. And if you're thinking about Fulfox, the same thing actually exists, but also the longer term they're on oxaloplatin, then the possibility becomes that neuropathy could interfere or an autonomic neuropathy could interfere with his ability to play tennis. But again, you can think about duration of therapy. Finally, because he presented with microcytic anemia, you ask the question, you know, how much risk is there from the bevacizumab, which is what we normally add to the first-line regimen based on the data that's out there, despite the fact that the data really hasn't been with the Fulfiri regimen per se, or now there's some data with Fulfox. What's the connection between the anemia and the Bev? Well, only that that implies that he's bleeding from the tumor, and the tumor's still intact, although bypassed, it's still intact. So the potential to cause more bleeding. Right. Axel, Uh, is that seen? You know, we know that on bevacizumab, patients have a higher risk for bleeding, but mainly in the range of grade 1 bleeding, epistaxis. So we have data from randomized clinical trials and from BRIGHT registry and the first BEAD registry, whatever, where we capture a lot of information of thousands of patients treated with bevacizumab. And the idea of, because this is a patient with intact primary, so it's apparently bleeding to some degree. And from the data of BRIGHT and other randomized trials, there is not a higher incidence of severe bleeding in these patients with intact primary. There's a slightly increased risk for GI perforation goes up from 1.52% to 3.5%. So it's still in the low range, but patients who have an intact primary for whatever reason have a slightly higher risk for GI perforation. So I deliberately picked this case in terms of first-line therapy because one of the interesting things yesterday was that Jordan was sort of against the entire group in terms of optimal. He was the rebel, we called him <laughs> yesterday. All 11 was saying full Fox Bev is first-line, and Jordan was saying full Fury Bev. So I wanted to give these two an opportunity to sort of play those choices out. Jordan, what would you think about specifically for this man? Full Fury Bev is his map. And can you talk a little bit more about your thinking in that regard? Again, they're equivalent. If this were a patient with liver-only metastases, my thought would be different in that regard. But in the three trials that are out there, admittedly, none are designed for true non-inferiority, but the curves have run together from Fulfiri and Fulfox. So one can assume that the progression-free survival, overall survival are approximately the same. Response rates may be the same, may be slightly lower, depending on which trial you look at for Fulfiri. But the thing about irinotecan is the diarrhea goes away. Hard as that is, the, you know, there's more diarrhea, there's more alopecia. I have not thought alopecia is big a deal as neuropathy can be. And we had a big fight about that yesterday. Here was yeah. alopecia, and suppose your patient is bald, and it was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out none of the bald guys want to lose any more hair. <laughs> so the, uh, the bottom line is, if alopecia is a huge issue for him, then irinotecan might not be the right choice. But otherwise, I would generally tend to favor the Fulfiri because what you're doing, the first line regimen is usually the one that they're going to be on the longest and the most. And the frank truth of it is that there's no permanent toxicity from that, unless, of course, you die from the therapy, which is considered permanent. But those are rare. And I think the big issue here is that there's not the permanent toxicity, such as the neuropathy, which can impair quality of life and shouldn't be underplayed in my mind. So I tend to favor Fulfiri first line for that reason when I'm not dealing with clinical trial or somebody with a disease that's potentially convertible to resection. 
Axel, how would you be thinking through this case, and what's your general approach to first-line yeah. therapy? So first of all, the case for me is it's important to make a distinction. Is this potentially curable or primarily palliative? So palliative is what it is here. So goal is to keep patients alive with maximum quality of life, allow him to do what can be done, and keep him around. That's how I talk to my patients. And I think this is a very important message patients should be getting right at the very first time when you talk to them. So I agree with Jordan that Fulfiri is underutilized in the United States because we have adopted Fallfox as our default for various reasons. But I think for one good reason, because a lot of patients really don't want to change the outer appearance. And we talk, it goes, again, along the lines of alopecia. If you have a patient who is visibly stigmatized as a cancer patient, be it, let's say, alopecia or acne-like rash from cetuximab, panetumab, all these things, these patients cannot convey the impression to the outer world, to themselves, that they're still healthy. There's this idea of, let's wait a little bit before I really declare myself as a cancer patient. We should not underestimate that. And I don't think the neuropathy is such a big deal if you know what you're doing, if you stop oxaliplatin at the right time. Because we know it's a cumulative effect. We know we can safely give about 600, 650 milligrams per meter squared cumulative dose of oxaliplatin before the neurotoxicity really kicks in. Everyone who's used oxaliplatin, you know that patients do fine, and then all of a sudden it really slams them with neurotoxicity. So if you stop oxaliplatin and continue the rest along the lines of Optimox, like 5-a-few bevacizumab maintenance therapy, after, let's say, eight cycles of modified Fox 6 which most of us use, then I think you can prevent neurotoxicity right up front, and tolerability is definitely on par, if not better, than Falfiri. So my preference for this patient would be talk to him, start him on a modified Falfox 6. I personally delete bolus 5 few from the mix with Avastin, with Bevacizumab for eight cycles, reassess the situation. Most patients will have some stabilization or response. Take the oxaliplatin off the mix and keep patients around on 5 few Bevacizumab. What's your take about the issue of alopecia and metastatic disease, Paul? I do mention that that's a potential concern. Most men don't care about it. Women care a little bit more about it. And I'm very proactive in suggesting wigs for those women. Oh, well, since you made that comment, I've got to ask Sarah then next what she thinks. <laughs> I deal with women a lot because of breast cancer. And I find that is an issue for the majority of the patients, young or older, women or men. And I agree with you. Many of them will choose because I frequently discuss Fall Fury versus Fall Fox and the potential when all the situation is equal. If you have a patient with diabetes, with neuropathy, obviously you're going to favor for theory. But assuming the patient can tolerate either one, I find that alopecia is actually very important. Phil, what's your experience? I think that the overriding issue is if somebody thinks that they're going to get a response, to whether it's colon cancer or breast cancer or whatever, the alopecia really becomes a very secondary issue. But all things being equal, as that's this judgment, how do you balance out alopecia versus neuropathy? I think the neuropathy tends to be more disabling and that people won't be so uncomfortable with the alopecia. I mean, two points to that. First of all, of course, patients are biased. They know what alopecia looks like, but they have no sense of neurotoxicity. Having said that, again, I wouldn't say it's either this or that, because if you really use Fox in an Optimox-like setting, you're not so much worried about neurotoxicity. There are some, you know, the cold-induced sense neuropathies, but if you really play it right, I don't think neuropathy is such a big issue. Another point is, and we talked about this yesterday, When I talk to patients and I present chemotherapy side effects to them, I normally start when we're talking about Fox. I start by saying, so first I'll tell you what you're not going to have. 
Because a lot of patients are, when you start talking about chemotherapy, they are so afraid about, you know, what's going to happen, I'll be sick and I'll lose my hair. So I say, okay, first of all, you're not going to lose your hair. And for a lot of patients, whether they realize it or not, you know, there's this, wow, relief in their face. And it's really, you can observe that when you start by saying, you know, this is not going to happen. People say, wow. Okay, so they have automatically a more positive attitude toward chemotherapy, more motivated to go forward. And then we talk about neurotoxicity and all these things. So, but starting out with something that they will not experience, but they expect to experience, is actually not a bad thing. I want to follow up and actually find out what happened with this man. Okay, so I decided to go with a full fox-based regimen. The first cycle was full fox, and then after he was more weeks away from surgery, he went on to Avastin full fox. He had six cycles, really, with virtually no toxicity that I could appreciate. No neuro problems? None. 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 Yeah, it's I mean, unusual after only six to have that. So. Yeah. I agree is, with Axel. You do have a limited fine. amount of neurotoxicity. I do live in Music City where everybody thinks they're musicians. A lot of people are into the music industry, whether they actually are capable of achieving stardom or not. There are an amazing number of people who play musical instruments and things like that, and doing that is an important part of their lives. And so the neuropathy, even though you say it might not happen and you know most people don't get it if we stop at eight cycles or six cycles, somewhere in there, they're still afraid of it a little bit more. So I think there's always going to be some cultural, regional variation to how people respond to anything in terms of the side effects. Well, hey, it's good to have a choice. What happened? All right, so... What happened after three cycles, he was staged, and his CEA had gone down about 80%, and on CAT scan, had definite response in the liver, and even a more marked response, surprisingly, in the pelvis. And we did the next three cycles, very little change in the liver, not much change in the CEA, and again, seen very little activity in the pelvis. And his question, every time I saw him, when am I going to get rid of this bag? which from the get-go was, you're going to have this the rest of your life. But then having completed those six cycles, I said, well, maybe we can re-examine this. He twisted my arm somewhat. He had a sigmoidoscopy. They saw some evidence that there had been some external compression there. They didn't really identify the tumor on sigmoidoscopy. So he was taken for laparotomy or laparoscopy to look around, and there was very little disease left in the pelvis. He was able to have a primary closure, which maybe we will regret later. How long ago was this? This was four months ago now. And did they see disease in the pelvis? No macroscopic disease. Did they biopsy? They did some random, mostly liver biopsies, which were positive. They didn't really bother to document, like in an ovarian cancer patient, that his pelvis was clean. Was it the same surgeon? Yep. Did he think that the tumor was gone he in the was, pelvis? He, he did think that there was nothing for him to do in pelvis except re-anastomose him. So what's going on now? So he recovered from the surgery very quickly. Again, he lives in Curacao. I was comfortable leaving him alone at that point. He had liver disease that weren't progressive. He and his family wanted to continue to do something. So somewhat along the Optimox lines, I just put him on Zolota. And he calls me every three weeks, tells me how his hands are. He faxes CBCs to us. If he lived locally, would you be giving him Bev too? Probably, because he hadn't progressed, so I probably would have. 
Axel, any comments on the case? Yeah, actually, I like the case very much. I mean, it's a great success. It actually shows how quality of life can be increased because a lot of patients think, you know, now this is what I'm going to live with for the rest of my life and my quality of life for him playing tennis and all is very important. I like the fact that he had a great response, revisited the idea of surgery, which I think is important message that we should reconsider this situation again. And then I like the idea of maintenance therapy. I mean, I'm a great supporter of the idea of induction maintenance therapy based on the data from Optimox 2, which were presented at ASCO, which actually showed a surprising difference for a complete chemotherapy holidays. If he was here, I would definitely like to see him on bevacizumab because I think especially since he hadn't progressed. I mean, there is clear evidence that the patient should be treated to progression rather than stopped early. But I think in the circumstances you described, that's probably the optimal way you can treat this patient. And I'll just tell both of you that we had a long discussion this morning about the IBET trial and whether people will put patients on studies, and they like it. Okay. Everybody well, likes it. See, this is great because we need to make this happen because we have a one-time chance now to really clarify the situation. We dropped the ball in Herceptin and breast cancer. We have no clue what we're doing. And the impact for our health system, for patient care, and from an understanding of tumor biology is much larger when we talk about VEGF inhibition as a chronic inhibition compared to treating just 20% of patients with Herceptin. So you've got the soldiers ready to line yep, up for the war. Okay. Jordan? It's available to you today. <laughs> Jordan, I like the IBET trial, too. What about this case? Were there any dangers in trying to you know, close the colostomy and take this approach? There's a risk that someday down the line he'll obstruct in there. And I guess you know that's a risk that one has to know about, one takes. But I would probably done the same thing. This is seriously impacted on his quality of life. This is the only thing he asked about each return visit from what you said. And to me, I think... I definitely would be swayed rather readily by the patients wanting that in this case. And there's a risk that someday he'll have the ostomy again. There's a risk someday worse that he'll obstruct and nobody will want to go back into his abdomen because it's very tough to go into an abdomen full of tumor. And so those risks exist. But at the same time, this was so crucial to the patient. I don't have an issue. And in fact, actually, I love the fact that he adjusted to his life, the fact that he lives in Curacao and switched to the Cape Cytobine. And like Axel, my ideal when I use the Folfox in an Optimox way, believe it or not, I do. I used to be a full break guy take everything away, give them a break. But now with the Optimax 2 data out in ASCO the way it is, I would do the 5-FU and the Avastin or Bevacizumab together when you can, but in this case you can't. So is this patient back playing tennis again? Yes, he is. He's very happy, very pleased right now. You know, amazing. I mean, you can't cure or unlikely, I'm for sure, that you're going to cure him. But what a difference you made in his life to give him this time again to play tennis mm-hmm. and enjoy his family and feel good. Yeah. Awesome. 